Welcome back to the show. Part two of Robert Zemeckis movies starts now. One thing that I appreciate about Zemeckis' movies is that there's so many great supporting actors. Like they feel almost like they're standing on the same level as the lead actor because they all they're, they're all so fleshed out. And my question to you is, out of all the movies, what character do you admire the most out of Robert's movies? It's such a great question. I have to go with Chuck Nolan from Castaway. All right. It took everything in me not to go with Marty McFly because who doesn't love Marty McFly? I know. We all want to be him. Right, right. But and I thought about it and I thought about it. And like again, I'm 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 holding, I'm saving Back to the Future as an answer for later. Because I, <laughs> I have a good one for that. But um um I do love Cast Castaway, I think is one of the greatest films ever made. And I think it's a great film because first of all, Tom Hanks' performance in that movie is it's hard to understate the difficulty of what he accomplished in the, his performance in that film. His performance was in, almost entirely in a vacuum. He was by himself for like, I think it's something like 70% of the screen time. It's he's on camera alone, carrying an entire feature film for that kind of time over the course of months of filming is extremely hard to do. And he did it in such an amazingly compelling way. And they film it over a couple of months. It takes place over many years. Like there's very little, precedent on how to approach a character role like that mm -hmm. it's so hard to do that well so hard i mean it looks like oh i'm just gonna like sit here and like bang a coconut against a tree and someone's gonna hand me an oscar but it's not that simple of course right it's there is uh it's immensely complicated uh character work that the actor has to do with the director to figure that out how they're going to approach it and i think and Tom Hanks turned in maybe one of the greatest performances American cinema has ever seen in that film um, as a result. And the character that he plays, who's a FedEx executive who gets stranded on an island, um, we see his that character arc change in so many ways, but his core ethos does not. He We see him faced with the scariest nightmare scenario that you can think of. You get lost on a desert island. Everyone forgets about you. You have to live out the rest of your life forgotten. I mean, I can't think of anything other than being buried alive scarier than that, right? <laughs> like, it's you basically are buried alive. And he, he, uh, he hardens his visage and his soul harden a little bit on that island. But his core ethos and the love that he has for his wife never fades. Sure. And his love for his family never fades. His, his... North Star Compass of Right and Wrong never fade. We see him play that out famously with the volleyball, Wilson, right? Um, and we see him, and that Wilson is his totem through whom we see him retain that humanity a little bit, you know, um, which is a brilliant move to, to create that as like a sort of a character focus kind of thing. Um, because we get to, he has an excuse to talk, right? right. That's, that's, that's nice. We get to see what's kind of going on in his head. But we don't really have to hear him talk because we can see it happening to him. His performance is so good that you could turn the you could turn the sound off on that film and still get it. One hundred percent. And the greatest films, you can do that. It can you, if you are really telling the right visual story and making the right choices visually, you never have to hear a, a line of dialogue to get the film. Um, I don't think anyone has ever succeeded at that quite as well as Castaway did. Um, and but and from a technical perspective, very impressive. But the character that we meet that Tom Hanks plays also really impressive because we should all be so lucky to survive a potentially life ending incident like that um, and survive it with such grace 
and then come back from the dead. You know, intact, ethically and morally intact after something like that. I don't know if I would be able to do that, you know, and I would, I mean, it would be a challenge. Um, and I like to think that I could, but I don't, I can't say that for sure. You know, I don't know if anyone can. And I think asking that question was a really interesting choice on the part of Zemeckis and, and Hanks and the portrayal of it and the character they developed to do it was just the right vehicle to do, to tell that story. You can bring up his performance a lot and it is amazing when you think about um, the time span that the movie covers and just the emotional weight that Chuck Nolan goes through. Like at the beginning, he's like the life of the party, happy-go-lucky. He's like Tom Hanks pretty much. And then Mm -hmm. he gets marooned and he becomes angry and depressed. And then he moves on later, like I think it goes like three years into the future maybe. And then he becomes borderline insane um, Mm -hmm. crazy person. And it all fits like you believe every stage of his character's development. And yeah, it's freaking impressive. Tom Hanks is yeah. one of a kind. And yet he retains, and they, but he, he survives that with his humanity intact, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. And we should all be so lucky if, if we were so unfortunate to, exp- to experience that, so lucky to be able to retain that afterwards. Um, uh, Lost, the TV show Lost, showed the other side of that coin, how, that can, how it can immediately break you. Mm-hmm. Right. So we got to, so you can actually, there is, we have media that you can contrast it with, which is like, oh, th- these people got a maroon on an island. They immediately turned evil and terrible <laughs> and like, and just forget, like, ah, oh, fuck it. All right. I'm, I'm a, I'm just feral now. <laughs> and just ready to murder and steal whatever. Uh, and, and like, c- contrast that with Tom Hanks, who's just there by himself on this island with a volleyball for years and somehow managed to make it through. I think that's really cool. I, I think it's an understated cool thing about that film. And I, and I, you know, love watching it for that reason. Just, I did a rewatch of it during the pandemic. Um, and I had forgotten a lot of the details about like how, like this, like the long silences, just like watching him like slow burn into madness. And it was just, God, it was just so great to watch. So if you haven't seen Castaway or if you haven't seen it in a while, strongly recommend a rewatch. A lot of critics have said that like no one else could have played Forrest Gump, but Tom Hanks. And I don't think there's anyone else in the world that we probably could watch by themselves on a screen for 90 minutes on the island, except for Tom Hanks. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, there are some, there are some parts that like actors are really born to play. This is one of those parts. Mm-hmm. What, you what, know? in your opinion, the ending of the movie, it ends on this really high angled, uh, crossroads shot where you're not sure where he's going to go. Oh, brilliant. I love that. Uh, the, the visual metaphor. Oh my God. It was a little <laughs> on the nose, but yeah. <laughs> where do you think he goes, uh, after the, you know, the, the fade to black. God, what a great question. Do you want to know Tom Hanks's answer? Yes. He says, uh, do you want to know where I think he went? He goes back and makes sweet love with that woman in that farm. (laughs) (laughs) And makes some beautiful babies. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Um, you know, that's probably true. I think I would agree. I think in the long term, I think he's the kind of guy who would be like, all right, well, I guess I'm starting over now. And I think he just picks up and goes to a new city and starts over and, and tries to rebuild his life. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm just, this is just off the top of my head. This is a little half-baked. I might have changed my mind about this later, but I feel like if that happened to me, my reaction would be like, all right, well, my wife got remarried. She's moved on. I'm I'm a third wheel around here. I need to go now. I mean, first of all, I need to walk that off for a minute because holy shit, that that gets you through like three years like maroon on an island, and then like suddenly you've realized that it was all for naught. That that is re- that you know, a- good oof. lord, that's a big oof. Um, 
but then you walk that off and then I was like, oh, well, I'm going to, I need to start over. I'm going to go somewhere else and, you know, I'm going to go to a random city and go meet, meet new people and, and just do something else. Just try to, you know, I, I don't know what else you could do. But after you go and you, you know, boink the girl in the farmhouse, for sure you do that first. Because she's, <laughs> she's right there. Yeah. You know, she's just up the road. You know, no road trip. It's just she's there. <laughs> you have to take a shower, then you can hit the road. You know what I mean? Like the, the, the order of operations. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's get serious for a second and talk about our, talk about our emotions. What's the movie that gets you, gets you choked up? Guaranteed every time you watch it. Oh, so uh, contact. Contact. I am a lifelong Carl Sagan fan. He is a personal hero of mine. Um, I love him so much, and I love his writings, and I love his mind, and the, and his contributions to science, and our knowledge of the universe. Um, that he spent most of his life, you know, pissing into the wind trying to do, um, with people trying to destroy him left and right for doing it. You know, just just the act of communicating science made him so many enemies and was really hard for him. Uh, it, it was, he was famously, you know, brutalized from all corners of, you know, let's talk about cancel culture. Oh my God, we were talking about cancel culture earlier. Dude got canceled over and over and over and over and over again before that was a thing, way before that was a thing. So he, uh, and all he did was just go out there and just say like, this is what science thinks about things. You know, he would, he would, you know, in Cosmos, like he would have these amazing lines, like the science communication, right? Like that was a genre that he pioneered. He would say things just like, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. <laughs> He'd say crazy shit like that. And of course, and then he would go on to explain what he meant and it was poignant and true. But uh, everything about him uh, and his legacy and his work uh, his writings, uh, his books, and his shows, uh, everything. Um, you know, when I think about him and I watch them, it makes me emotional because um, not only was he such a, a titan in our understanding of the body of science that we now take for granted today in terms of astrological science and our understanding of like the known universe outside of our planet um, that he's responsible for, but um also like you know waking entire generations up to like the possibilities of like what there is left to be explored and one of his favorite topics um and he was often asked about was alien life mm -hmm. and he wrote a lot about it and he talked a lot about it and in uh in the 80s uh around when cosmos came out his tv show on pbs um he also he and andrewian his his collaborator who later became his wife uh wrote um a screenplay called contact together and it started out in life as a screenplay that nobody wanted to make because everyone thought it was just this wacky, like, <laughs> no one's going to want to watch a movie about it. What? Like, everyone thought it was kind of Looney Tunes. And then he turned it into, he adapted it into a novel. And the novel is what blew up. And then years, years later, um, he was approached uh, by Robert Zemeckis and said, I'd like to turn this into a film. And he said, please do. So... Unfortunately, and what's really sad about that movie, the saddest thing is that he did not live to see it. Oh. He died six months before it came out. Damn. And that is, that's just fucking sad. That's so sad. The movie itself talks about, is a, is a story about how this one woman, against all odds, intercepts uh, communication from intelligent life that teaches her, and it teaches humanity, how to 
get in contact with them and how to join an interstellar civilization. And they go, she fights against all odds, all these political odds to get the information and to get it and to uh, find the funding to get it made and to make it happen. And then it blows up and it turns out there's another one. She gets, she gets chosen to go and, and she goes and she meets this alien and travels across space and time only to find out like, yeah, you know what? Humans kind of suck too much to join this. And then she comes back to Earth, and it turns out that everyone else just saw her drop right through that thing, and they thought that she had failed, mm-hmm. that she was never there. There was no evidence of her trip, that the whole thing turned out to be a hoax, and no one believed her. And the story itself is just, I mean, it's Carl Sagan, what he's saying is just like, humans are not ready. Mm-hmm. They're not ready. They're not ready to, to get to this place beyond the stars and join an interstellar civilization if there is one because we have we're too wrapped up in ego and image and power to get there yet we just we just don't have and he wrote about that a lot in his books and he talked a lot about it on the television when he got interviewed on things and it made it made him a lot of enemies all over the place the reagan administration hated him uh he got he got he just had so many enemies um and all he was saying was just like guys like this is if you want to get there, if we want to get to this place, which I think would be really pretty great, like we have a lot of work to do. And that's all he was saying. And, you know, no one would hear him. And not only was that true in the story of his film, but it was true in his own life. And in his own life, he was denied the justice of even seeing it make it to screen. And just like the multi-level of that, like, so when I watch that film, it like, it just, you know, directly gets me. Because all I can think about is like the way that played out is proof positive that Sagan was right the entire time, complete with his own death, robbing him of seeing his, his vision come to screen. I mean, holy shit. Like the, the multi-level dimension to that. Talk about, you know, uh, like the dimensionality of like a Roger Rabbit. But I think that's what I think that's what drew Zemeckis to this project is because I think he sensed that and he thought that was compelling. And from Zemeckis' point of view, because, you know, he's just basically a man-child in a lot of ways, he was like, ooh, cool, special effects. <laughs> and there was a lot of great special effects in that film. Some not so great special effects, famously, the uh, the the scenes um, that take place on the alien's home planet were some of the worst green screening I've ever seen in a movie, I think, before or since. Um, <laughs> even for its era, it was terrible. Um, but there was some other C- there was some other um, CGI in that film that w- really was very pretty. Um, I think the uh, the device itself. Uh, if do you remember yeah. uh, the concentric ring thing? Yeah, I thought the way they modeled that was really good. Once you get to the plant, they get to the planet. It was like, oh god, this is just like this terrible spill suppressor green screen that you do in After Effects. Like, oh my god, this is awful. And it's you know, so I, like the whole, now I watch that, I'm like, I just kind of wins. But the message is all true. And I think I think Zemeckis liked that because it gave him an opportunity. I think this may be the closest he ever got to really like melding his CGI um, artistic vision with a gut punch of a socio-political message that really resonated. You know, I mean, Forrest Gump probably is the best, but the, but that movie is less known for its like overt CGI than its subtle CGI. This is overt CGI. And it was, and I thought it was just so well done. And, and it, it's a movie that everyone kind of like rolls their eyes at and forgets because, you know, I think people have a weird thing against Jodie Foster. I think there's like a whole like thing problem with her. But it has a, has a great cast and Jodie Foster's performance is brilliant. And the writing is, of course, brilliant. Um, Tom Skerritt is in it and he does a great job. He's the big villain, um, uh, you know, government guy who's trying to fuck it all up. He does a great job. 
Matt McConaughey's in it. Does a great job. I just, I just, I love that film for so many reasons, and and it makes me think all the time because I'm a huge space and science nerd, also, um, and it's just it's a coming together of a lot of things that I care a lot about, and the tragedy that followed that story, and it's both in its real life application and in its story, um, are something that really resonate with me even to this day, almost twenty five years later. Wow, for me, it's one of Zemeckis's most underrated. Films. I don't think anyone. I don't think I hear anyone ever give it praise or or talk about it. Agreed. Um, and it's if Forrest Gump is an epic, it's an equally epic, if not more epic, movie because you're, you're understanding like the greater world of science and the universe. But he did it such a smart way. Zemeckis did it in such a smart way because you start off from the perspective of a child, and things are explained to you like a child, and then you can like you can take the next leap to the image the images of the first broadcast olympic games with hitler and then like you keep growing and growing and it all seems kind of grounded because you're giving these little these little steps and it's like this this giant story that includes the government and the world and all of these people and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and it's honestly like, and it, and it all starts and it all starts from like this little girl in her room with her dad, like playing with toys, to like a, to like an adult girl with it with her, in a little room with her with her headphones and her computer. To like you're right, boom, boom, the entire universe suddenly is like the set, and you're like, oh, whoa, that escalated quickly. Yeah, it all seems kind of obtainable through this Zemeckis lens, and mm-hmm. um, like Jodie Foster is a fucking rock star in this. Yeah. The court scene at the end with her like oh, deposition God. or testimony, like that almost gets me choked up with how yeah. sad she is for the rest of the world that they can't get on her level of this experience. I know, I know, and like it just like watching it, just like I don't know, it's 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 cringe. It's like there's no other word for it. Just like like oh God, here we go. Let's let's watch why humans are useless. Go on <laughs> and action. Humans terrible and action. Right? It's just like it's hard to watch. And Zemeckis gets it, and boy, does he do a great job! He does a great job. And in the original, um, uh, the original plan was to have Sagan himself on the. Uh, there's a selection committee um, at the beginning where they're, you know, in that that scene where they're like trying. He was going to be on the selection committee, uh, making comments about the uh, people who were going to go on the first drop down oh, uh, ride. That'd been so cool. But but he died right before they shot it. Damn. So they could he couldn't be in it. I mean, fucking tragic. I mean, just awful. But yeah, and I agree with you. And it was my would have been my backup choice for underrated film. I was gonna that be, again because I'm trying to I'm trying not to double up where I can where I can avoid it. Uh, I went with Mel- Welcome to Morrowind for uh, the most underrated Zemeckis movie. But my other answer would be Contact for sure. I got you. I have a side question for you. I don't know if you are like a soundtrack nerd like Trevor and I are, but I think that Contact has one of the best themes from Alan Silvestri. <sighs> Is there a Zemeckis movie that you have a particular like? affinity for the soundtrack oh what a great question i do love the contact soundtrack um i mean i think forrest gump has one of the greatest soundtracks maybe of all time so mm-hmm. uh castaway has a great soundtrack yeah so so sad so sad back to the future has a great soundtrack oh yeah but yeah i think forrest gump forrest gump and castaway both have great soundtracks all right there you go Chris, I know that you became a father for the first time this year. You have a, a baby boy. Um, I did. What is the movie that you cannot wait to show him when it's the right time and right place? Back to the Future. 
And that's I, I, I've been saving Back to the Future this whole time for that question. <laughs> Back to the Future. Uh, I mean, it's going to be a little awkward to watch a movie with your son about a guy who goes back in time and try and tries to hit on his mom. That's going to be a little weird. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we're all going to have feelings about that, and we're just going to have to live with it because it's an awesome movie, and you have to see it when you're a kid. And I can't wait to show him uh, that and and other classics from the '80s that you know I grew up and loved. So it's going to get a big old dose of of '80s nostalgia for me. I don't know how old you. Let me ask you a question: How old do you think a kid has to be in order to see Back to the Future for the first time and get it? That is a great question. I would say like. 10 or 12, but I think that I saw it when I was like six or seven and fucking loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would have said exactly the same thing. Like 10 or 12 was probably the appropriate age, but like, I think I saw it probably around six or seven too. And it's like, cause it was like, by the time we saw it, it was like, it had been out for a while. Right. Like it was a home video thing by then. You know, we're, I think yeah. we're, I think we're both too young to have seen it in theaters, nope. but it's yeah. like, you just, you, you know, you, you discover it later and someone, somebody has it on tape at their house and you're like, Oh, what's this? Whoa. Out of time. <laughs> cool. Uh, I w- wonder what this is all about. Like, who are these people? And, and why is, why is it that this kid hangs out with a nuclear physicist? This doesn't make any sense. But of course you don't ask any of those questions uh, because there, I mean, if you back to the future is an amazing film for so many reasons that we all love. But if you start to delve into the plot dynamics and and the characterizations and how certain things were written in that film, it completely falls apart. That John Mulaney stand-up bit where he talks about that pitch meeting, totally 100% on point. Like There are a lot of problematic things that went into the development of that film that maybe weren't all throughout all the way through. You know what I mean? <laughs> like the the whole thing about like, you know, like, oh, well, in order to save all of history, I have to go and like, you know, kind of hit on my mom a little bit and like take her to like uh okay. That's that's a choice uh that you can make to to do that. Or like, you know, appropriating um a famously, you know, a famous song from a black songwriter and saying like, oh actually a white guy created it. Also problematic. Yeah. Um there was just a lot of <laughs> problematic choices that were made in that film, but um, thematically it's sound. The performances are great. Um, it has the right message, which is, you know, fight for your family and fight for the things you believe in um, because no one else will do that for you. Important message, classic 80s, you know, teen film message, and nobody did it better than Back to the Future did, hands down. Um and of course, it was the movie that I think launched both Michael J. Fox's career and Chris Lloyd's career. I think they both they both really like launched. I know Chris Lloyd was around. He did Taxi and a bunch of other things before that. But like he became a household name with this film. And it was just he turned it into an amazing performance. Yeah. You know, it makes no sense. That film makes no sense. <laughs> but it's great. And it's so much fun to watch, um, despite the fact that it makes literally, and I cannot stress this enough, zero sense zero but watch it and watch it with your kids because like this is it's kids because in, in a child's brain all those logic things don't matter no the feeling matters the look matters the amazing soundtrack matters oh my god that like the theme song da, 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 like so you, you can't good. you will never you just stays with you forever mm-hmm. you know i remember the first time i heard that song and i was like whoa like what it, like it like it you know it gets you that like Back of your, like, I don't want to like lean back from the mic, but like, it just gives you that back of the seat, like, white knuckle grip, you know? I mean, it's so many genius things about it. The production design, incredible. It's just, it's a perfect film on so many levels. And it's hard to say enough nice things about it. And um, this is one of those, it's one of those films that everybody went and remembered. And like, everyone talks about Michael J. Fox and Chris Lloyd, but whose name never makes it into the conversation about that movie? Robert. Bob Zemeckis. No one's just like Bob Zemeckis film Back to the Future Two. Nobody, nobody ever says that. That's no. not a thing, you know. For me, yeah, it's kind of hard to put your finger on 
on Back to the Future on like what makes it great because like the story, as you said, it doesn't make sense. It's the reason why forty studios turned it down or whatever it was before it got picked up. Um, for me, like it was made in eighty five or eighty four. Like every they say nineteen eighty five so many times in the movie. I was born eighty five, so like it feels like me and Back to the Future are the same. And like yeah. it, it feels like it's like it's like my parents almost like it's just like a giant column in your life or a giant pillar in your life that you can't yeah. imagine it not being there it's like it's just like it's oxygen yeah. that you breathe it's always been there it's a part of your identity it's a part of my speech and totally it's hard to separate anything from it because it's just one of the greatest totally i completely agree that's well said that is absolutely well said pillar pillar of childhood 100 percent. even though that pillar may have been made of cocaine it still made perfect sense to us at the time Right, like that, like that movie was basically made of cocaine, and like because it's just, it's just like, like got that whole like wild-eyed craziness to it, and it doesn't matter at all, <laughs> at all. It's fine. There are so few movies in all of film history that can say that, that can get away with that kind of lunacy and still be a classic. And you could count them on one hand. Back to the Future is by far the best. Yes. You know, yes. and we will always love it for that reason alone. And that's why it's just, it's going to be there for us to show to our kids and for them to show to their kids. It's just going to be that movie. It's a, one of those movies you watch with their kids, you know? Are you terrified that your son, at whatever age, show it to him, he might just stand up and walk out because he just doesn't like it? <laughs> just because so bored. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, uh, so I think um, – for those of us who have uh, encountered and interacted with, you know, quote unquote, kids these days, right? <laughs> um, you may have noticed that they have an even shorter attention span than we did. And we thought ours was bad. It is so much, so much worse Getting now. Worse. Um, and getting them to sit down and watch anything that was made in the 20th century is boring to them. So you could just, you could start right there and just know that you are fighting an uphill battle no matter what um my approach to this as a father uh and my wife and i have a lot of conversations about this and she laughs at me every time i mention it so i'm going to mention it again here so you'll have the opportunity to laugh at me as well but my approach to this is going to be exposing them to media um should be um a consciously approached project you know a lot of parents do that whole like i'm not going to put screens in front of my kid thing futile effort don't bother with that. Instead, manage it and manage it well. Curate their experiences early. So by the time they are going to friends' houses and they're getting exposed to all the new terrible 3D, you know, bullshit that you get on Nickelodeon now, like you can you get they'll have a foundation from which to make critical judgments of what they're consuming. You have no hope, zero, no hope of preventing them from engaging with that content. But what you can do is inform them with a positive approach to media exposure and making sure that the things that they're curated aren't necessarily sanitized, but at least have a quality control that you can make sure that they have a fluent film vocabulary that they can use to make critical assessments of media. I mean, and this is not something you have to wait until they're old enough to blah, 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 to do. You can start that at two years old because at that point they are already starting... The, the listening comprehension is already beginning and their visual acuity is being developed. You can start it as early as one or two years old, but it just like put on old films, put on the old 2d Disney stuff for them first. So that when they get to the Pixar stuff and the Nickelodeon nightmare that is, that exists now, then they're going to be prepared for it. It will, they will, there will not be any, 
you know, reaching for, and this is all my theory. I have no scientific evidence to back this up. I have, my sister-in-law is, is literally an expert on children's media. And I'm sure she would, she would have 19 ways and 19 papers that she could produce to prove that I was wrong. But, um, and, and maybe I am, but my approach to it as a father is going to be, let's watch back to the future and let's watch, um, you know, romancing the stone. Let's watch some old films, and and uh, yeah, and yes, maybe 1941 will be on that list anyway because I love that movie. I don't care what anyone says. Uh, it's just like stupid movies from the 70s and 80s, uh, old films, and old and old cartoons, and just and and let then send them out into the world. And if like what he sees next, he's just like, all I want to watch after that is Peppa Pig. Fine, fine. I you know I, I just don't push back on it. I'm just gonna let it happen, and that's how it'll be. But manage that through. Because like, especially if you're like like us and have an extensive film education, what would we be doing if not like making sure that they're being exposed to good quality entertainment? Because they're going to see it. Yeah. It's either going to come from you or it's going to come from somewhere else. You know, it's like that whole jo- the old joke about how like parents will say like, you know, when my kid starts drinking, I want them to drink with their first beer with me. I don't want them to drink it at some somebody's basement <laughs> yes. somewhere and like get arrested or whatever. It's kind of like that. Like I want, I want to have some... I want him to be like, oh, dad, I want to watch this old, you know, Transformers cartoon with you. Oh, sure. Yeah, let's let's absolutely do that. And for him, so now I'm not going to be like, oh, that's so stupid. Dad. I'm an adult. Dad. Like, don't because you're not going to like, you don't. All you're telling him is I think you're a stupid kid whose opinions don't matter. That's all you communicate to them. You're not impressing anybody. Just manage it and participate in it, you know, and then maybe they'll be like, hey, dad, I want to watch some old 80s stuff like Back to the Future. I don't know, Chris. You you might just have a career of child psychology ahead of you or something. <laughs> In that realm. That's my pitch. That's my pitch, Luke. We'll, we'll see if that sticks. If anybody buys into that, but that's kind of how I feel about feel about. I, I I've spent like all of these months alone with an infant. My son, um, for the record, for those who don't know, is uh, just turned three months old. I spent this whole past summer, uh, May, June, July, August, all this whole past summer. Um, sitting up at night at three o'clock in the morning with him thinking about this. So I have a lot of feelings and thoughts, <laughs> which if you're wondering like, where is all this ranting coming from? That's where it's coming from. From like late night, like, oh my God, I haven't slept in three days. And oh my God, you know, like, and and, I'm, and what I would do is I would just put on like old cartoons. All the old Transformers, like the original 80s cartoon has just been put on. Uh, I mentioned, uh, we talked earlier about how Transformers the movie turns 35 years old this year. Yeah. All of the original cartoon has been put on YouTube for free. Wow. It used to be like behind a paywall uh, to watch the cartoon. So, uh, so it got released and it's it's part of the whole 35 year celebration thing. And I was just like, great. So I have started to put it on while I'm feeding him. So I'm like watching like old Transformers cartoons with him and he loves it. He <laughs> fucking loves it. He's three months old. He's just like stares into it. Like, what are these? Because he's just like the shapes. And that's fine. You know, it's a lot of shapes and colors and like blah, 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 blah. And like and lasers going off. And that's great. It's a, that's all Transformers was. It was, a, it was a commercial for toys. But it was, that's something that he and I can share now. And he has like, when he goes, you know, uh, when he goes to his friend's house and he watches six hours of Peppa Pig, he's going to have that background. Yeah, and that, and then I can I can have a frame of reference with it when I talk about it. Well, I I hope that all. I'm just here to hijack the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Weird places, Luke. This is what happens. Join us next week on. uh, Join us next week on kids today and their stupid toys. Twenty first century. (laughs) (laughs) We have got two more questions for you. Yes, sir. um, We've already talked about a couple endings so far, but I would like to know what you think is. Zemeckis's most satisfying ending of a film. 
So I'm gonna use um, I'm gonna use my phone a friend option and go with contact again. Yeah. And here's why. This is my this is my um, my epilogue on the contact thing, which is Carl Sagan's uh, one of Carl Sagan's genius uh, things a bit with that film was, and one of the criticisms he always got was about how um, how his pro science crusade was sort of an act of vengeance against God, and a lot of religious types had a big problem with him for that reason. Sure, none of that was true, but um, what he often said in interviews uh, and repeating, you can, and this is all a matter of public record. You can, this is all findable stuff. He said um, he's like, I don't see why religion and science have to be at odds. I don't think they're contradictory ideas at all. In fact, I don't think they. In fact, I think they're more complementary than they are contradictory. Um, in a lot of ways. And what he'd say is like, we don't, there's a lot of questions that we don't know, but we have to be prepared to just say that we don't know instead of filling that gap in with, with a divine answer. You know, maybe if you believe, if you believe that, that's fine. But like, you know, science says that we don't know yet and we have to be able to accept that too. And, and for all we know, you know, there could have been an intelligent creator that created the universe. And in fact, in contact, that's exactly the message we get because at the very end of the film, the, uh, it is it is d- discovered that the recording that Jodie Foster's character was wearing, the recording device, which recorded static, actually recorded 18 hours of static. Mm-hmm. And there's proof. And in it, we uh, she is also able to find a numerical sequence that proves intelligent life put it there. Uh, and in fact, the uh, the discovery that she finds says like, oh, actually, you know, um, this this technology is billions of years old. It's almost as old as the universe itself. There could have been an intelligent creator. And in fact, at the end, it says science and intelligent design can be the same thing. Brilliant. And he does it in a way that is scientifically accurate and respectful Mm -hmm. to people with all different kinds of beliefs. And even though like, the the third act of that film, everything else in it, like the scene that we were talking about with the uh, um, with the panel at the end where she's being judged and Tom Skerritt's like big mad at her about that. Um, God, it's so satisfying. It's so satisfying that that Carl Sagan's last act on Earth was a huge fuck you to his critics who wrongly judged him for a position he never held um, and did it with such grace and style that it's just it's just. Ugh. It's just like it's just like the sigh at the end of a long massage. You know what I mean? And it's only it, it's satisfying if you are a big Carl Sagan fan and know that about him. It's not in, it's not the internal logic of it isn't so much that way. I think that the uh, in terms of in universe endings, um, I think the most satisfying ending is probably Back to the Future's ending, the Back to the Future One's ending, because yeah. it just has like that satisfying like the the people reappear in the photos and like all that. But the uh, the contact one was especially powerful um, because it's so emotionally fraught, that film, for me. Um, and so having that satisfying ending is sort of like the soothing salve yeah. at the end of that. So it's, it's a whole ride, but the whole ride ends on the upswing yeah. because he, he proves mathematically, in a way, that... Maybe, you know, we can prove the existence of a divine creator. We just don't know. Like science is, all science says is we don't know. Right. And I, and the way he does that is so 
excellent. It's just, and it's so fucking sad. I mean, so that's why, that's why I picked that because it's just like, oh, I see that. Oh God, it felt so good. Just like, <laughs> it's just like one last thing on his way into the grave. Just like, yeah, it was just very satisfying. Anyway, um, that's, that's my choice for, that's my uh, epilogue on contact. Yeah. That film is, uh, it reminds me of Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, because it kind of has multiple endings. It has three endings, at least in, in my eye. It's Oh, um, yes, yes. She leaves the um, Congress floor, Senate floor. Yeah, like the hearing room. Yeah. yeah. She goes out the steps. There's all the paparazzi. She gets in the car, but then Matthew McConaughey is asked a question, like, do you believe her? And like the entire movie, he's been saying, no, 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 like it's faith, 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 religion. Then he says, yes, I do believe her. You're like, oh, fuck yeah. But then the next ending is when she's talking to the kids. And it's like, well, what do you believe, little one? It's like, oh, I don't know. Well, she's like, well, that's a great that's a great answer. Like, we don't know. Um, and one we day, don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But one day you could you could know. Keep keep asking keep asking those questions. And then the third ending yeah. is her on the canyon sitting and kind of having this pensive moment. And then she like picks up some some sand and some gravel mm-hmm. and it's it kind of has more of a an ambiguous ending for me I'm like because i'm like wait, was there a reference to like that we are sand in a in the giant like are the sand pieces of stars like what's the ending there for you oh yeah when she holds the the sand in her hand and kind of looks at it um well carl sagan's um uh famous book was pale blue dot right that was his uh his big thing and um the story about Pale Blue Dot, the famous story is that he had a Voyager 2 turn around when it was passing by Saturn and it took a photo of Earth. And it was at that time in the 70, late 70s, it was the, the farthest image of Earth ever taken. Right. And in it, the, in that photo, it is Earth is exactly one pixel by one pixel in a black void with just sunbeams. Yeah. He wrote a poem about it uh, and then a book about the discovery of you know and earth's place in the cosmos and i think that that see that is sort of a tribute to him because his whole thing was like we the last line is like we are uh, a mode of dust suspended in the sunbeam and uh, nothing else yeah i can see that and it was it was a sort of a tip of the cap to um to like i'm getting emotional just thinking about it yeah that is a very a poignant ending to to that and it's a great tribute to Carl Sagan which they do say right at the end there's like poor Carl right yeah. yeah and I think there's a certain amount of like he wanted the um he wanted the quest to move forward you know mm-hmm. it was his uh it was his passion and uh and he had a lot of feelings about it and those feelings got communicated well Bob Zemeckis really like he nailed it. He got it. Like, and there's there's a lot of campy weird weirdness that goes on in that movie, and a lot of people have the rubs them the wrong way. I totally get it. But if you're a Carl Sagan fan, um, it's just very satisfying. Like in a in a very Carl Sagan kind of way. Yeah. But literally, the most satisfying ending is probably Back to the Future one. <laughs> that one really feels good because it's like it ends with everyone being happy and they're like they're their best selves, but then. Doc comes in. It's like, here comes a sequel. And you're like, fuck yeah, it's flying. <laughs> True. Well, this begs the question of my last question, which is, let's say that you are going to be stuck at a, stuck in a bunker. The world is going to end. You have time to grab one Robert Zemeckis movie to take with you to watch in your bunker over and over and over. What movie are you going to choose? 
Oh, look, I'm so sorry. I'm going to break the rule again. Castaway. Oh, wow. Out of left field. Castaway. Um, out of left field. And I, and I, and here's, here's uh, two reasons why. One, like I said, Castaway has one of the greatest performances ever seen. And it never gets old. And it's just one of those films that you just pick stuff out, right? But if you're stuck in a bunker... I see where you're going with this. <laughs> if you're stuck in a bunker, that movie has a lot of hope for you. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> because, because he gets saved in the end, you know? And it can remind you to maintain that hope. And that hope is good for your soul and it will help you survive. Wow. So Castaway is the movie I would bring with me into a bunker. Wow. That's perfect. That is a very Chris Godwin answer there. <laughs> <laughs> You like you like I outsmarted the question. <laughs> <laughs> that is, but you know what? So uh, smart. <laughs> well, you're you're very kind. I, I would say thank thank you to Bob Zemeckis for um, building a catalog of films that are um, shockingly easy to put into categories like this because it's like uh, all of his films have a different personality mm-hmm. and a different purpose and different. Different different places that he had his film library is all over the place in a beautiful way, and it lets people with all kinds of different tastes and interests kind of all enjoy his body of work. Um, not every filmmaker can say that. Some filmmakers specialize real hard in one place, and that's their thing. Um, like if you you either love Wes Anderson or you don't, mm-hmm. you know, um, or you either love Martin Scorsese films or you don't, you know. Um, there's no like, there's no in between with them. Zemeckis has something for everybody. Yeah. He is great at accessing wide ranges of audiences. He understands kids. He understands grownups. He understands men. He understands women. He understands um, people with struggle. He understands um, people with, um, you know, people who uh, want to escape. He has, he gets all of these different groups. Very rare in a filmmaker. And we get, we as the people get to experience this huge, beautiful library of stories that he's able to tell in a way that no other filmmaker can because that kind of repertoire is so rare and that ability to um, tell those kinds of stories and that breadth is so rare and I think we should just you know take a minute to appreciate Bob Zemeckis the guy who made all these films happen and just the rarity of of a national treasure that he is and is not recognized enough for being so thanks to you Bob cheers this one's for you Cheers, Bob. Thanks for being you. Here's to here's to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 more years of awesome weird movies from you, man. Please keep going. Never stop. Couldn't have said it better myself. He is like the Baskin Robbins of directors. He's got something for everybody. <laughs> well said. Very well said. <laughs> oh, Chris, you have done an amazing job with your choices and you've done so much research and I can tell that you are so invested um in films and great filmmakers. This has been awesome to get your opinions. And hey, Luke, I just want to say also, um, I, I love that you do this podcast because for those of us who are big film nerds, uh, it is really fun um, to go through um, the episodes of this show, uh, Movie Time Capsule, and uh, which you can download um, all over the internet and all, all the places, and please do, because it's a great show. Um, and conversations about film from people who love film are important. Um, and it's an important way for us to understand our culture. And I appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you very much. It is it is my pleasure. It's like honestly, like I feel like I should be paying you guys to come and talk to me because I just love having these conversations. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's my absolute pleasure to do. We'll get, we'll get you some sponsors, and then you can get paid properly as as well. You should be. That's right, Riverside FM. You can sponsor this podcast. <laughs> <today>. <laughs>
<laughs> All right, Chris. The last thing of the show needs from you is to provide us with the sound effects of this of your capsule closing. Ooh, I like it. A little air seal in there. <laughs> it sounds like a like a gun cocking. <laughs> but it also sounds like a good little tight latch. That was great. Chris, thank you so much. Is there any final Zemeckis trivia that you want to lay on us? Or any uh, tidbits? <laughs> Two bits. Um, I have... Uh, <laughs> I um, When I was in film school, um, one of my first ever production class that I took was in the Robert Zemeckis um, building. Yeah. Um, and that was when I learned who Robert Zemeckis was. And that he was connected to so many films that I loved. And at the time, he was gearing up to make the Polar Express in that building, which he did. And we watched him make it. I mean, not all. It was like you would walk in, his team would be in there doing the things, and you weren't allowed anywhere near it. (laughs) But like he built his first motion capture studio in that building where I learned how to make movies. And I watched it happen. And that was just a hell of a thing. Uh, it was like the most. It was the state of the art building for film on campus at the time. There's now newer ones that that building is now 20 years old. But at the time, it was state of the art. It was just awesome going to to school in that building every day because it was like that was where uh, the thing was happening. And the guy whose name was on the building was in there making a fucking movie. Like <laughs> you could just watch it happen on your way to class. I mean, what a wild thing. So. I just I lived two blocks away from it, and I just thought it was the neatest thing that I was going to the. Well, I was like, I was like Robert Zemeckis. Oh, that's interesting. And I had no idea. I, I knew vaguely that he was the guy who directed Back to the Future at that point, but I just didn't know anything about his career. And it wasn't until I started taking classes there. I'm like, oh my god, this guy is responsible for half of my childhood. Where's this guy been? Like, why don't I know who? Why? And, and that was kind of that started this thought, and that's what planted the seed, which ultimately led to this episode of the show today. Wow, that is kind of mind blowing and kind of a perfect LA story there for you. <laughs> Talking about perfect LA stories. Holy shit. If you want a recap of Godwin's capsule choices, you can go to the show notes and find the link in there. And thank you to you for listening. I hope this episode encourages you to check out some new movies or revisit some old ones. Lastly, here is a final parting piece of trivia. Name the Zemeckis movie that has this ending line. Good luck, cowboy. <laughs>